All of these things are systems that are interacting with each other. So it's not just technology, it's not just corporations, it's not just repressive states. These systems interact and reinforce each other. So it is the state, it is the power of the corporation, it is capitalism, it is structural racism. All of these things are interacting with each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Declarations. From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, my name is Munagasim, and this is Declarations. Today, we're here to discuss the future of human rights in the digital space, a medium that has greatly expanded in the past year as the COVID-19 pandemic has forced many of us online. In this new digital frontier, what role do big tech and social media companies play in safeguarding or diminishing our fundamental freedoms across the globe. As our special guest for this week's episode, we have Alina Utrata, a PhD candidate in politics and international studies and a 2020 Gates Scholar at the University of Cambridge, whose research examines how technology is impacting historic forms of state and corporate power. Alina received her MA in Conflict Transformation and Social Justice from Queen's University Belfast as a 2017 Marshall Scholar and her BA from Stanford University. She's worked at the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford, the Brexit NI Law Clinic, and KRW Human Rights Law Practice in Northern Ireland, the Asian International Justice Initiative in Phnom Penh, the Balkan Institute for Conflict Resolution, Responsibility and Reconciliation in Sarajevo, and the US State Department in Washington, DC. I also have with me today in the studio, producer Sam Barron, who will help lead this discussion as a panelist. Alina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for taking the time to appear in this podcast for what is said to be a very exciting and interesting discussion. Um, and I think we should just sort of get right into it. Um, and one thing that I really like to talk about is, you know, these huge social media companies. So Facebook, Twitter, they've become almost like these multinational corporations. We see them everywhere and they have so much power and we all kind of use them, right? So I want to know what are, you know, what obligations do they have towards their user, users, sorry, users, and what rights, what rights do we have when we use these social media, um, these social media apps, which I'm sure all of us and a lot of our listeners do use them. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such an excitement and honor to be here. Um, and I mean, I think you put it, you put it really well. Um, I think there's kind of two things to tease out when we talk about technology corporations. I think everybody sort of, you know, even prior to COVID pandemic, everybody's been kind of nervous around like the, the power of this, these technology corporations, sort of like, what are they doing? How should we think about them? And it's sort of a difficult question to answer, um, even though we all kind of recognize that they have, you know, immense amounts of power over us. Um, so I think there's two things to tease out. One is the corporation as a corporate form. What rights do corporations owe us? And then like specifically how the technological aspects or technology companies in particular affect rights. So if the question is, you know, do corporations, do they need to abide by human rights? The answer is yes, <laughs> they do. Even though it doesn't feel like it all the time. Um, you know, and, and even at the level of the UN, there is an acknowledgement that you know, corporations need to abide by human rights. So often we think of this like, you know, corp corporations or business only being 
um, dealt with by like the ILO or in terms of labor organizations, but that's actually not true. So um, in 2011, um, there was a UN special rapporteur on um, uh, human rights and business, which came up with the UN guiding principles um, on business and human rights, which basically say like, yes, you need to abide by human rights. Um, however, right, the ultimate guarantor in quotes of human rights are states. So even in the UN guiding principles, um, it, it's acknowledged that states need to hold corporations accountable. Um, and um, and we see, you know, we see this on multiple levels, whether it's US, the US trying to pass things, Australia is a really interesting example currently of somebody who's fighting a technology corporation. Um, the EU has kind of been most aggressive in the space, which is not a state, but still um, has, you know, supranational um, lawmaking powers. Um, and there's a very interesting, I think it, it's really interesting to study corporations and human rights as well. It's, it's sort of under theorized, sort of understudied, but there's a lot of interesting implications um, uh, and a lot of interesting things happening about whether you can hold corporations accountable for human rights. Um, one of the most interesting things, I used to study transitional justice um, and uh, the subsequent Nuremberg trials um, saw, you know, representatives of the German state. So not just, you know, we, we often think of the Nuremberg trials as, you know, the top kind of government leaders, but they also hold representatives of German society on trial, which included representatives from major German corporations. So like IG Farben and the Krupp case was clearly an acknowledgement that, right, like corporations are important actors in the human rights space. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's really interesting stuff happening in the US Supreme Court right now around a case involving Nepsley about whether corporations can be held accountable um, for human rights, because there's kind of this kind of nebulous gray space where there's individuals and states and corporations sort of seem to operate in this weird gray space where they can get away with things. If I could just... Um... Right in a little bit. I know you mentioned um, kind of like the UN um, guiding principles on human rights, um, the Ruggie principles. Um, but like some people have kind of argued that you know these principles are like outdated to kind of like you know c combat like the abuses that kind of go on like that are unprecedented in tech companies. So like you know the right to internet access, the right to like net neutrality, for instance. So like, what should like be done to kind of combat like these new advances in like um like old systems of rights so like the, the udhr like the internet didn't exist when udhr was formed right mm -hmm. so i'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts um on that component i think there's again i think there's there's two things one is whether the rights like human rights themselves are fit for purpose and then there's a second question of like how, are these rights actually being implemented i'm sort of agnostic about whether we need like an update on human rights to cover um, technology corporations. The old rights seem to fit pretty well. So I was taking a look last night. I was I brought out my UDHR um, and, you know, the right to privacy, right? Like these are all things that apply and I think are, are very important, but they're just not being implemented. Um, but, but there is, yeah, there is definitely also like debate around whether we need like more rights in the in the digital space. Um, I think in general, I mean, it's 
The question around how to hold technology corporations accountable for rights is a really interesting one because I think it does go back to sort of like, who do you think should have power, right? So when, this is kind of my bugbear when we talk about Facebook. Facebook often says in response to criticism around whether it is, it is either allowing or not allowing certain things on its platform, it often says, we are upholding the right to free speech. Mm-hmm. Now, that's nonsense. Facebook is not a government. Facebook is not required. It's a private corporation. It is not required to uphold the right to free speech. As a private entity, it, is, it can and does throw whoever it wants off its platform. Same with right Walmart. Walmart can ban people coming onto their premises for any reason it wants. It has, you know, so Walmart famously introduced a ban and you can't come into our premises if you're carrying a gun, regardless of what the laws around gun ownership is. They also ban people for like being drunk in the parking lot, right? Private corporations can ban people. So when you have conversations around, so it says, so today, I think, or it might've been yesterday, depending on time zone, Facebook banned the Myanmar military on its platform. Um, And this comes after, you know, for years and years, the UN found that social media was a really important um, uh, way uh, that the military um, had committed basically genocide against its population. It stirred up hate speech on Facebook's platform. It was basically, you know, and and Facebook too, it should be said in Myanmar, is the military. It's not like here where it's one social media platform that you may access among a number of different sites, right? For most people in Myanmar, the way you get on, when you get online, end quotes, you're getting on Facebook, right? So it's really, really, really important. Um, However, right, that also means that Mark Zuckerberg, who has basically absolute control over Facebook's corporation and its policies, can decide whether or not the Myanmar military is using its platform and how right? So for years and years and years, he didn't do anything. And all of a sudden today, he woke up and said, okay, you're off. That's an enormous amount of power for any one individual or corporation to have. So the question, I think, right, to go back to your question about, like, do we need new rights, right? The question, I think, is not really like, you know, should we, you know, should there be a right to privacy? Like, should you, you know, not enable like ethnic cleansing, but so a question around power, right? And like who and how do you exercise those rights? Like, is it okay for one CEO or one corporation to have that much amount of power to make a decision around who or what access or who or how access their platform if it, it affects things so dramatically across the globe? So what do you think? Do you think someone should have that much power? Because so Mark Zuckerberg was obviously criticized heavily for allowing, um, you know, Trump, um, Trump's like retweets to be posted on his website. And he explicitly said, and he said this, he said that we have a policy for allowing, um, you know, state actors um, to warn of the use of force. Um, and, you know, that was his policy at that time. And that's what he said. And that's how he defended, you know, allowing, you know, hate speech essentially on Facebook. So what do you think? Do you think you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg, CEOs, people who run these large corporations should have that power and the autonomy to control what is otherwise their company, right? So should they be able to control what's on there? Or should we have, you know, greater monitoring or or monitoring bodies to sort of 
you know, speak up and fight, um, fight for the rights of people who are being infringed by these, um, by allowing hate speech to be, to appear on their website or what could otherwise be construed as hate speech. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's two, I think, responses. One is should, should one individual, Mark Zuckerberg, and it's not even the corporation because there's very good reporting by Ryan Mack at BuzzFeed uh, just this week actually on how Mark, even though Facebook had all these policies or whatever, um, Mark steps in at the last minute and says, actually, personally, I don't like this. So for instance, Facebook was going to ban Alex Jones and Mark Zuckerberg personally said no, right? So let's, let's put aside the question of whether it's Facebook. It's one man. I do not think that one person should have that much control over what can be allowed and what is not only allowed, right, but distributed. So the question is not, can I post something on the internet? You can post something on the internet anyways. Trump isn't mad that he can't say what he wants on, you know, trump.com. He's mad that he doesn't get the algorithmic reach of being on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Then the question is, what do you do about it, right? Um, So, you know, there is a fairness question. Like some people say like, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook from his, well, some people say Mark Zuckerberg stole Facebook, but we'll put that aside, right? You know, he built this in his dorm. He got the money for it. He built it up. Um, it's not fair, right? That the state comes in and then controls whatever you're, you say. I tend to think that that's a poor framing of how corporations exert control in society, right? Which is, of course, corporations have obligations to society, right? Of course, they affect things. Of course, everything Facebook does is political. Like, so um, uh, Josh Simons, who's a colleague of mine at the Mindaroo Center here at Cambridge, uh, does research on this in which he basically said, look, every single, like, every single algorithm that Facebook does has political impact. Um, So one obvious example, right, is like, Facebook has this lookalike tool um, that um, allows you to like target audiences, right? And so people like uh, who are advertising houses were using it to basically only advertise certain houses to white families or to white Facebook users, right? So uh, of course, like when we think about that, we say, well, of course, Facebook shouldn't be allowed to do it. It doesn't matter that Mark Zuckerberg owns this corporation. Of course, he has certain obligations, right? So that's that's one question. Then the second question is like, okay, we've decided that, you know, corporations, Facebook has obligations to society. What do we do? Uh, personally, I think that the entire, desi- the way we've entirely designed social media in which we have centrally controlled news feeds, which are distributed by algorithms, are designed to enable centralized control by corporations, right? So the reason Mark Zuckerberg can make these decisions is that when you log onto Facebook or you log onto Twitter, you see a news feed. And what you see, on, what posts you see on the top of that news feed are designed by a personalized algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be designed that way, right? You could have something like, for, I love the Wikipedia example, right? When you log onto Wikipedia, there's no like news algorithm for what user has made the last edit you know, most recently, or you think that Mark thinks, you know, Wikipedia thinks will be most relevant to you, right? Um, we could totally design social media in that way. That's more like, um, like poster boards, right? Where things are more collaborative, where there is, where it doesn't need to be determined by a content moderation, air quotes, algorithm, um, where it can totally be, you can definitely have 
not just, you know, top-down regulations, but actual, like, abilities for communities to um, decide for themselves and debate amongst themselves. I mean, one of the problems with the content moderation um, debate, which you kind of bring up around, like, hate speech and what is hate speech and when does it matter, is that these are contested things, right? No society ever has ever been able, I mean, I really don't think that the, no, anyone will ever be able to make an algorithm where people are like, oh, thank God, you finally managed to like balance free speech and also like hate crimes, right? Like we are constantly discussing this. It's a mediated process and everyone is involved, right? So I think the way to think about how to address that is not like how do we rejig these algorithms or how do we impose regulation, but like how do we design social media sites that are more participatory? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of wanted to go back to your point um, you made earlier about like the framing around like what Facebook is trying to do to like, combat the problem. So I forget when exactly, but like, Facebook has been like mulling the idea of like doing like kind of like a, um, a content moderation system that like elects representatives from like various countries um, as like represent like its own form of like government within Facebook. And like it's trying to frame it as like, you know, um, like this good thing that Facebook is doing to, you know, like combat like the inherent problems with the platform. But do you think like, um, do you think this is just like a veneer to like cover Facebook? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I have to say, I actually don't, I haven't heard about that proposal specifically, but it's really interesting in that Facebook really attempts to mimic government. So we see that with like the Facebook oversight board or the quote unquote Facebook Supreme Court. Um, and even, you know, years ago, they also, Facebook also implemented the sort of, it was like referenda voting on policy changes to Facebook where they were going to said they were going to let Facebook users to make changes to content or whatever. And then nobody voted because they made it really difficult to vote. And then they quietly got rid of it. Even when they do things that are nominally like seem democratic or participatory, at the end of the day, whatever Facebook wants happens, right? So even if they implement these, you know, whatever it was, the representative to content moderation boards, right? It Facebook, the corporation controls that, right? Same with this Supreme Court. Facebook tomorrow could decide to get rid of it or, you know. And so the question then becomes, right, when, fa like, to, to, like, there's two parts to the question. One is, is Facebook making the right decision? And does Facebook have the ability, is Facebook the legitimate, entity that should be making that decision. So for instance, with this Myanmar military ban, right? Did Facebook make the right decision in banning the Myanmar military or Trump, for instance? Like my like take is like, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe the military should not be on Facebook or being able to use it as a tool. But then the second question is like the legitimacy to decide, is it a problem that like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg can make these consequential decisions um, even if we agree with the decision itself. So you mentioned algorithms, right? And you mentioned social media apps and how their algorithms work. And we've seen Facebook be a really ruthless business in terms of they're using their algorithm to keep people on the app. So when TikTok developed, they developed Reels. Um, you know, they're trying to like um, sort of make Reels sh that are reposted from TikTok less showy on people's feeds. Um, and they're very, very smart in the way they do this. And there's a lot of data collection involved. So cookies um, on the internet, when you go on other sites and you log in via Facebook. So all your data is collected and it's sort of this data aggregation. So you're just, you're just like a mini number, but your data is collected. 
Now, my question about that is, what do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's okay? Because after all, they are businesses and they are meant to keep people on their apps. Um, do you think that's sort of better than them collecting individualized data about a certain individual, so their name, their location? And in a, to an extent, that is collected. So how do you feel about this sort of data collection mechanism and the way it sort of infiltrates all of our internet use? You know, a lot of us are logging into onto websites via Google, via Facebook, and we forget that our data is essentially being stored and then used for targeted ads. So how do you feel about that? I, I'm just I'm so curious to know what your thoughts are on that and how do you feel that it how do you feel about that for you know particularly human rights activists and workers who happen to be on these websites, right? And sometimes working with hostile governments. Yeah. I mean the short answer is it's very, very bad. <laughs> um, so and it's not just Facebook, right? Everything that you do online is tracked. Uh, mm -hmm. Facebook reads your messages, Google reads your emails. I this is a side note, I highly recommend if you're listening to this that you switch to Signal as a messaging platform because it is encrypted and they don't collect data on you. Um, but same with, so Vice did reporting really recently that was like the US military is buying da location data from users of a Muslim prayer app, right? All this is this is just a widespread model for for internet use. It's not just Facebook, and and in fact, a lot of you know the data brokerage that happens can, is often compiled, right? So it may be from you know one of the things Facebook is pretty good at doing because it's so big. But this happens more generally in the market for data is that you know one app collects one piece of information at you, and it's all amalgamated. So <laughs> you are being tracked. It's very bad. Mm -hmm. Then the question becomes: Okay, why is all of that data compiled? bad. So as you point out, right, the most obvious example is that data will be handed over to repressive governments, right? This is a huge problem for human rights activists around the world. Um, uh, so we saw this most recently, right, with Clubhouse, and this is this new popular Silicon Valley voice chat app um, <laughs> that, um, <laughs> I don't know if you're on it. <laughs> I am. I haven't got the hang of it. I was on it pretty early on and I've listened to like one conversation I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it but <laughs> there are people who are raving about it and some people love it some people hate it um it's just interesting how what do you feel about it I have to say I haven't used it very much I am on clubhouse um we could have another episode entirely dedicated to clubhouse um the actual experience of being on clubhouse is interesting in terms of going to a voice, and then there's questions around accessibility for people with disabilities. So, so we'll see how Clubhouse goes. But right, the big problem that came up recently, so the Stanford Internet Observatory did a report on this, which is that you know, so Clubhouse collects your content, it collects metadata. I don't know specifically what metadata it's collecting, right? But it, it certainly collects information that could be linked to your identity. So Clubhouse was banned in in the China App Store because they knew that there were data. Um, security concerns around, you know, what data the Chinese government wanted on, on individuals. So um, many users in China who are very internet savvy used VPNs to download the app and open chat rooms that were talking basically about like the ongoing genocide against Uyghurs uh, amongst other kind of like politically sensitive issues in China. Turns out, right, <laughs> Clubhouse is very poor data security practices. And the way that they were storing that, that data meant that, um, essentially the Chinese government had access to it, right? So then you have a situation in which this data that is collected on individuals that can identify them 
and associates them in chat rooms that are discussing politically sensitive issues are being handed over to you know, the Chinese government, right? We can't prove, right? It's, it's possible that this lead will lead to arrests and detentions. You can't necessarily prove and be like, well, you know, this data led to that. Um, but it's possible and it's possible and, and many other contexts, right? So not just China, but like across the world. And it's also happening in the United States. Um, so Matt Mahoudi, who um, is a, just finished his PhD here, um, did, and he's, I think, the creator of this podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he's wonderful. Yeah, he was on my podcast last week talking about his incredible research in which, you know, he, he focused on, um, he did research in, in New York City and in, in Berlin, um, right, in which, and this wasn't even data, right? This wasn't even like Facebook, which we think of as sort of vaguely nefarious, right? This is like, he was looking at things like public Wi-Fi kiosks that will, you know, connect to your phone automatically. And so, you know, Matt specifically looks at immigration and, and refugee communities, right? If something on your phone identifies you as an immigrant and that information, or as an undocumented immigrant, and that information is handed over to ICE, right? That can lead to your deportation, right? And if, depending on like the circumstances that you're in, right? Like that can be a death sentence. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I went to school in Silicon Valley. I have a lot of friends in the tech industry. And sometimes like the implications of that data collection just doesn't enter their discourse, right? So when the clubhouse, you know, the issues around clubhouse security came out, like talking to some of my friends who work in the tech industry, they're kind of amazed. They're like, wow, that's in kind of almost incredible that our app could, could cause harm essentially. And so I think there's just like a data collection causes so much harm and can cause so many individuals to be at risk if you do not think through the implications, particularly if you live in a context, like if you live in Silicon Valley, which you're not often thinking about your immigration status, you don't, you, you know, you're not worried about the US government. Although, you know, things with like Amazon Ring, right? And it's, it's conversations, uh, it's um, um, links with police departments, right? They're being used to spy on Black Lives Matter protesters, right? So depending, like it is not just China, like it is 100% also in the United States, um, in which this type of data collection directly puts people in, in harm's way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm also on Clubhouse. Um, <laughs> okay, we should all join a group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like let's all bandwagon onto the um, app that's putting access to risk. But anyway, um, just I know like um, you mentioned that Clubhouse was um, recently banned in, in China after this kind of like dialogue between you know like activists in Taiwan and Hong Kong with the mainland, um, and like a kind of a similar um, thing happened last year. Obviously, we're doing um, you know this podcast on Zoom, um, but when last year Zoom kind of admitted to shutting down meetings that you know commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square um, crackdown. And then it suspended the accounts of um, like an like U.S.-based organization um, working with like exiled Chinese activists. And so, like, and then this is like obviously the direction of um, the Chinese government, the CCP itself. Um, so, like, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like what kind of tools do tech companies kind of have um, at their disposal to like prevent this, or like 
what can they do? Um, is it, can they do anything? Yeah, I mean, I should also say Zoom also was, has for quite a long time also not been allowing Palestinian activists to use its tools. Right, I think that it depends on where you think the power is coming from. There is the question around what governments can force technology corporations to do, right? So if the, so like this is famously why Google or at least Google claimed to have exited China because China, the Chinese state was forcing them to do um, things that they, they consider to be against their values or, right, or like Yahoo, this was a famous example where right, they were forced to hand over emails around a political dissident, um, which then resulted in their um, detainment, right? So there's a question of like, what's, what powers do states have, have over corporations? But then there's also the question of like, what power do corporations have over us, right? So Zoom could decide not to allow you to use it to host your podcast because we're criticizing it, right? Like theoretically, I mean, I thought that that Jackie Weaver video that went viral was very, very interesting about the parish council where this um, woman was able to, you know, emit these individuals from a parish council meeting with the click of a button really. And if that had been happening in real life, you would have needed like some security forces or whatever to, to remove people. So it's really changing the dynamics for how we, coerce people. And I really, you know, I also don't think Zoom is really taking into consideration like how it's impacting people. It certainly doesn't seem like Zoom is championing human rights and being, you know, forced by by states to do these things. Um, although they may claim that and that might be an interaction that's happening. So I think, you know, it's it's sort of a triangle, right, between the power of states, the power of corporations, and then the power of call individuals like people and, and how you're interacting between those those nexties. Great. I think that's a good point to end our discussion on for our listeners to sort of think about. I'd like to ask you, is there one main sort of point that you'd like us to get out of this discussion, something that you'd like people to think about as, as, uh, as they listen to this? The main point is that all of these things are systems that are interacting with each other. So it's not just technology, it's not just corporations, it's not just repressive states. These systems interact and reinforce each other. So it is the state, it is the power of the corporation, it is capitalism, it is structural racism. All of these things are interacting with each other. And so we need to take a really kind of big step back and look at all, all these systems holistically. There's never going to be a technical solution to the power of technology corporations. These are big things that are happening um, in the world. And we kind of need kind of like a big, um, big, wide systemic ideas in order to be able to combat them. Great. That is a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Alina. Thank you for joining us today for that great discussion. A lot of interesting points, a lot of things to think about. Thanks, Sam, for joining us in the studio as well. Everyone, this was Declarations. Make sure you check out our website, www.declarationspod.com, where you can find information and further resources on this website. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, so follow us and check us out on our social media. A big thank you to our sound editor, Max Parnell, as well. Thanks, everyone, everyone from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. My name is Mona Gassin.